there! Thanks for listening to the Elevate Christian Church podcast. We exist as a church to connect people with God and each other. Today's message comes to us from our lead minister and preacher, Kevin Barton. We hope this inspires you, grows you, and challenges you in your faith and your walk with Jesus. Enjoy! So I was reading an article in Psychology Today about the Prince of Granada. Way back in the day, hundreds of years ago, he was the heir to the Spanish crown. And he ended up getting himself in trouble, uh, a little treason, a little treachery. uh, And he ended up being sentenced to life in prison, a life of solitary confinement in one of Madrid's most notorious prisons. It's called the Place of the Skull. Uh, And that place certainly earned its name because it was a fearful, dirty, and dreary, dreadful prison. Everyone knew that once you went into that prison, you were not going to come out alive. And so the prince was given a book to read for his entire time in prison, and that book was the Bible. And with only one book to read, he read the Bible over and over again, hundreds and hundreds of times. Uh, This book, this Bible became his constant companion. He was in prison for 33 years, in a cell by himself with just his Bible. Well, after 33 years, he died in that prison. And when they came to clean out his cell, they found some notes that he had used his fingernails to scratch on the soft stone walls, prison walls around him. And the notations were of this sort. Psalm 118.8 is the very middle verse of the Bible. Ezra 7.21 contains all the letters of the alphabet except the letter J. The ninth verse of the eighth chapter of Esther is the longest verse in the Bible. And then another note was scribbled on the stone wall that said, no word or name of more than six syllables can be found in the Bible. When Scott Udell, who wrote this article I read in Psychology Today, he noted the oddity of this. He noted the oddity of an individual who spent 33 years of his life in prison with no one to talk to and nothing but a Bible to read, who had read the Bible, who, which is probably the greatest book of all time. He had read it hundreds and hundreds of times, but the only thing he gleaned from it was trivial knowledge. For all that we know, he never made a decision or a commitment to Jesus Christ, but he died an expert of biblical trivia. Uh, Today, if you're visiting with us, we are going to continue to talk about the importance of the Word of God. We've been in this series since the beginning of the year uh, on the armor of God. And Paul, last week we got to the sword of the Spirit, which Paul says is the Word of God. And Paul equates God's Word to a sword. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17 is the text we left you with last week, and it says at the very end of this armor of God passage, take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So let me just review real quickly last week to kind of set us up because we're going to build on last week's message. Here's what we said last week. You and I, and in Ephesians 6, Paul is describing a war. He's describing a, a battle, and he's telling us to put on armor. This isn't like costume 
uh, jewelry and a, and a costume. We put it on to look good. No, he tells us to put on the armor of God because we're going to need the armor of God because in our Christian walk, many of us are going to face the fight of our lives. He calls it the evil day when Satan is not trying to tempt you from afar by firing arrows, but he is right up on you. He is in your face with a dagger that he is thrusting into your heart, trying to get you to fall. And so we said, we're in a war. This is a, a bloody, dirty, blood, sweat, and tears. There's collateral damage. There is loss. And that we have to use the word of God. And we went to Luke 4, and we'll go to Luke 4 in a minute, but that's when Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted, just like you and I were tempted. The only difference is, is that Jesus brought his sword into the wilderness. He brought the word of God. And so every time Satan tempted him, Jesus would respond by saying, it is written, and then he would quote scripture. Well, he did that three times, and Satan couldn't take it, so he fled from Jesus. It's like Jesus plunged that dagger into his heart, and he fled. And here's what we said last week, we are to do the same, all right? And we read Psalm 119.11, which says, I have stored up your word in my heart. And the reason I've stored up your word in my heart is that I might not sin against you. And so last week, I challenged you as we left this building to write down some verses that will help you specifically with your struggle. So if you struggle from anger and rage, memorize, write down verses about anger and rage. And when the devil comes upon you and that anger and rage boils up, quote that scripture and he will flee from you. So I, I ask you to do that uh, last week. And then we ended last week by saying this. Do you remember King Arthur? King Arthur was nothing without his sword, Excalibur. And then we said, did you know that Excalibur, the sword, really didn't belong to King Arthur? It was given to him by magical means, by the lady at the lake, and it was not a weapon forged in this world, but in another. And, and then and here's how we kind of ended it. We said, this is the sword of the Spirit. This is the Word of God. It is a sword that was not forged here on earth. It is a divine sword crafted to complete perfection by the Holy Spirit of God himself. It is a supernatural sword forged from the hand of God and that is extremely powerful. Well, I want to continue today speaking to you along those lines. In particular, what I would like you to walk away with today is I want you to be able to unleash the power of the sword of the Spirit in your lives. So, you know, I, I grew up, I was born in 1971, and so I'm a child of the 70s and the 80s, but uh, as a teenager, like 12, 13 years old, even, even that old, I liked cartoons. I mean, I'm 51, and I still like cartoons today. But so there's no shame in this. I would get home from middle school, and the first place I would go to was the refrigerator, uh, and I would get a snack, and I would sit down and start eating my snack. And every weekday by four o'clock, one of the greatest cartoons that ever uh, that anyone ever invented came out in my life. It was called He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, right? And if you remember that in the 80s, you had this kind of effeminate prince named Adam, and he lived in a castle, and he had a green tiger for a pet, and he kind of frolicked around that, that castle. He was like a huge bachelor pad. But Prince Adam was in charge with 
protecting the universe against this evil guy named Skeletor. Now, do, if, if you remember, how many of you remember that cartoon, by the way? All right, so I'm not, I'm not speaking to a dead audience here. All right, so when Adam wanted to become He-Man, you recall what he did? He would take his sword and walk out in, in, in front of his castle, and he would hold that sword up. And he would say, by the power of Skull," and then all this lightning and stuff would, would hit the sword. And then he would like transform. He was already pretty buff, but he would transform even bigger. And, and his cat, his tiger would transform. And then he would be He-Man and that, the, the flames and the, and the lightning are hitting that sword. And he would say, I have the power. Remember that? That's the image that I want you to have in your head right now. Because I want you to understand something this morning. You have that power. Not the power of some fictional cartoon character, but you have at your disposal the power of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And I cannot emphasize this enough. You are not going to gain any traction. I am not going to gain any traction. None of us are going to gain any traction in our spiritual lives without utilizing the sword of the Spirit. When we pull that sword out, what we're doing is we're invoking God's power to be unleashed on the enemy before us. And you may say, you know, I am tired of the devil being in my face. I'm tired of being attacked. I'm tired of the devil getting into my business. I'm tired of him messing with me. Well, my advice to you is this, then pull out your sword, thrust it in his heart, and I promise you it's a biblical principle that he will flee from you. James says, resist the devil, put up a fight, take your dagger out and stab him and he will flee from you. Now, here's what I want to submit to you this morning. And if you didn't grow, if you grew up rather in like a really fundamental Baptist church, or you even grew up in the Christian church, this might be weird for you. I'm going to go ahead and get that out. This might be a little weird for you this morning. But here's what I want to submit to you. In order to properly utilize what Paul calls the sword of the Spirit, you have to literally and actually speak the words of God out of your mouth in order for this to work. Now, in order for me to explain this to you, and I want to do it on a detailed level here, uh, we, need to do a, we need to take a deep dive, and we're going to do a word study. Now, relax. I'm not, I'm not going to make it seminary. I'm not going to like bore, I hope to not bore you to tears. Like only 19 people fell asleep during the nine o'clock service. So, um, but I, I really want you to understand this because I think this could transform your life. Like I, you know, a preacher say that every week, right? This can transform your life, but I, I mean it this time. This could transform your life. So if you go back to the text, verse 17, you know, Paul's systematically listing this armor that protects us. And then he, he points to this offensive piece of armor and he says, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So Paul says that the sword of the spirit represents the word of God. Now here's where it gets interesting. And here's where I need you to pay real close attention for just a few minutes. In the New Testament, there are actually three different Greek words used to describe the Word of God. And all three of them have different nuances attached to them. Okay, so we're going to start with a very basic. 
The, the first Greek word used to describe the word of God in the New Testament is a word called graphe. Graphe. And graphe simply means this. It's very easy. It means the written word. It means scripture. It's your Bible. It's God's written word. And so an example where the word graphe is used is a very popular verse of scripture on the word of God that many of us know. It's 2 Timothy 3.16, which says this, all scripture, all graphe is breathed out, out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training and righteousness. So there's that word. Graphe means it is the written word of God. So let me set the scene. For you, it looks like this. You, you might not even be a Christian yet. Somebody buys you a Bible. It's your 12th birthday or your 16th birthday or whatever. Your parents or your grandparents buy you a Bible, okay? And so when they give you that, you have in your hands graphe. You have the written word of God. Now, everything in there is inspired by God, but you haven't even cracked the book open. It's just there, right? And so you can use it or not. Many people who call themselves Christian, that's as far as they go in the word of God, graphe. They own a Bible. They have the written word. You, you, just because you own a Bible doesn't mean much of anything, does it? I told you I was a child of the 80s and the 70s. So in the 70s, we had this unique piece of, uh, I guess you would call it a living room decoration. Um, you don't see it much these days, but in the, like in the 70s in particular, you had coffee tables. And on those coffee tables, you had what was called a coffee table Bible. Now, I don't know how many of you remember seeing those. All right, those things, you could double those things. You could tie those around someone's ankle and drown them in the sea because they were these huge, giant books. And you put up these Bibles and you would put them on your coffee table. Many people got them for wedding presents. All right, in the home that I grew up in with my, with my mother and my stepfather, we had a ginormous coffee table Bible. And it, it just sat on the coffee table. Now, the home in which I grew up in was far from a Christian home. In other words, having a Bible, having the written word on our coffee table did not transform our house or our lives. It was just graphic. It was just the written word of God sitting there. So you had this big Bible on the coffee table, but we did nothing with it. It, it had absolutely no impact on our lives. We had a Bible. We had a big one, but that's as far as it went. This might be some of you, right? I'm coming to church today. It's Mother's Day, and my mom won't leave me alone, so I've got to worship with her, so I better bring a Bible. Well, other than that, bringing the Bible to church, it has no influence on your life. You just, you've got the inspired Word of God, and it's just there for you to use or for you not to use. That's graphe. Everybody understand? All right, I would say any questions, but then someone will ask a really weird question. All right. There's another word used in the Bible for the word of God, and it's got a deeper meaning than just the written word. And it's a word that many of you who study the Bible might be familiar with. It's the Greek word logos, logos. Logos means the message of the word. So you've got the written word, but then you open it 
and you read it, it's an understanding of what you're reading. I understand the message. I understand what the Bible's saying. So in actuality, it's using reasoning and, and understanding. And our word logic comes from the word logos, right? So in a very little literal sense, it's the understanding of the message, understanding of the word. So it would look like this for you. Someone gave you a Bible. You've got the graphe. You bring it into church. I preach, you open it, and I preach the word, you follow along in your Bible, but you don't just hear the message, you believe it, you receive it, you understand it, you're understanding the word. It, sometimes it cuts you, right? So that's why you'll come to church and you'll leave here angry or frustrated, or sometimes you'll leave here boohooing and crying, because the, the Holy Spirit and the word of God is cutting into you. Let me show you an example of where logos is used in Scripture. Very familiar passage, Hebrews 4.12, which says this. For the word of God, that's logos, is living and active. You see, graphe that just sits on your coffee table is not living and active until you open it up and you begin to read it and you understand it. You, you tracking with that? Okay. So logos is this understanding. You, 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 you hear it. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of your soul and your spirit. Let me stop right there. Your soul, my soul, that's your personality. That's the desires of your heart. That's your soul. Your spirit is your godlike part. That's the image you were created in, okay? And so Paul says, listen, this, this can divide your soul and spirit. Now, question is, why would we need our soul and our spirit divided at, at, at some point? It's because our souls our personalities, the desires of our hearts often get in the way of our spirit, our godlike part. Duty continues, and the joints and the marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And so the picture we get here of the word of God, logos, is God cutting us open. All right. I've heard one commentator say, logos is God's MRI machine. It's him cutting you open, pulling it apart, and peering down into, into your very heart. He knows everything about you. He knows what makes you tick. He knows what, what, what sin you struggle with. He knows what you like. He knows what scares you. Right? He opens you up and sees inside your soul. When that happens, we have understanding. We get what the message is. Let, let me show you a real quick example of how the Holy Spirit does this, and I'll, I'll try to be quick. Remember before Jesus was crucified, he's talking to his disciples and, and John, and his, everything goes over their heads. They don't get it. Uh, he's trying to tell them, look, dude, I'm going to die. I'm leaving. But when I leave, somebody else is coming to take my place. And we know that to be the Holy Spirit, right? So look at John 16, 7 and 8. Never, these are red letter words. This is Jesus talking. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Holy Spirit, his primary job, Jesus says, is to convict you, right? Because you're not going to repent. You're not going to make any changes in your life unless you understand there's something wrong. Now, here's the interesting part. Watch how the Holy Spirit convicts you. It, it's, it's amazing. You got to go to Acts chapter 2. Jesus had been crucified. 
He resurrected, and now he's ascended to the Father. And the church is about to start in Acts chapter 2. Peter gets up and preaches the first gospel sermon. And it's a tough sermon, right? It's one of those heaven high, hell deep, worldwide, shotgun barrel straight, toe-stepping sermons. He's actually preaching from the Old Testament. It's kind of a hellfire and brimstone. And so the people heard the word preached. Now watch this. And the Holy Spirit is going to use that word to cut right down to their heart. Acts 2.37. And when they heard this, the logos, the message being preached, they were cut to the heart. This is by the Holy Spirit. And they asked Peter, what do we need to do? And if you know the story, 3,000 people were saved that day. And so they understood logos. Logos is you coming to church with the word, hearing the word, and understanding that the word proclaims that you too can be saved. Now, here's where it gets interesting for those of you who are still awake. The first two words, graphe and logos, have everything to do with your salvation, right? They have everything to do, and we rejoice in that. We say yes, and we say amen. However, there's this other word, that's used to describe the word of God. And this word doesn't have to do with salvation, but it lends itself more to preservation. And here's what I mean by that. By preservation, I mean self-preservation. I mean, when you give your life to Christ, and I, I don't really care what Joel Osteen says, life doesn't get easy, it gets hard. Life doesn't get easier and, and you become rich and, and your kids never get sick and, 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 and you know, it, it becomes harder when the reason it becomes harder is because you've got a, a big old target on you now because the devil knows you've declared to be one of God's children. And so that doesn't mean he's going to stop coming after you. That means he's going to come after you even closer. The evil day is going to come. He's not going to fire arrows from afar. He's going to get up in your face with a dagger, and he is ready for hand-to-hand combat. Now, you don't hold up Grafe. You just don't hold up your Bible and say, be gone, devil, and expect him to flee. You don't even lean into Logos. Well, I understand what the Bible means, and, and here's what Kevin said Sunday. No, when he attacks that way, you take up the sword of the Spirit. Look at verse 17 again. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is a different word in the Greek. It's not graphe. It's not just the written word. It's not just the understanding of the word like logos. It's a word called rhema. And this is an awesome, awesome word. Rhema, here's where it's going to get weird for some of y'all. Rhema is the spoken or declared, or utter utterance of the Word of God. In other words, it's an utterance that comes from our lips. It is actually quoting Scripture out loud. And so last week when I challenged you to, hey, memorize some Scriptures that that are you know, pertinent to your, your sin struggle, maybe some of you did, but you didn't quote them out loud. You just thought about them in your mind. It's not going to work. You need rhema. It is a a, a literal utterance of God's word out of our lips directed to whom? The devil himself. All right, so remember last week, let's go back to the example of last week. 
You can find it in Luke 4, Matthew chapter 4. Uh, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. The devil is up on him. He's tempting him over and over again. Drop down to Luke 4, 3. Uh, he didn't eat for 40 days. And the devil says, I know you're hungry. You haven't eaten for 40 days. Make that stone into bread. And look how Jesus answered him in verse 4. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. So he is speaking the word of God. And we know from last week, he does this two more times and the devil flees from him. I love you, but I want you to understand something. If Jesus Christ, who is the son of God, who holds all the same qualities and all the same power of God. Go back to John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word's with God. That's Logos. They're talking about Jesus here. If Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, who is the Word of God, still had to use the Word of God to defeat Satan, what makes you think you can beat Satan with your clever little thoughts and your clever little words? You can't. God is a verbal God. Jesus had to verbalize Scripture to make the devil flee. It's not enough to just think about a Scripture. You've got to verbalize that Scripture. You've got to, you've got to run with that thing, man. You've got to speak it out loud, and then the devil will flee from you because God is a verbal God. God doesn't think things into being. God speaks things into being. Go back to Genesis 1 real quick, real quick. Genesis 1, it's the creation account. And God's creating everything that we know, everything that mankind has, everything that you see God created. He didn't think it into existence. He spoke it into existence. There's a big difference, right? Genesis 1-3, and God said, let there be light. And an amazing thing happened. Boom, lights came on. Go down to Genesis 1-9, and God said, he spoke it, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. We could go on, but go down to verse 11. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees. And on and on it goes. And it was so. Go down to verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. You see, God spoke it into existence. He didn't think it into existence. If God has to speak for things to be, don't think for a second that you can just think your way out of sin, that you're more clever than the devil. I'll just find a way out of this. That you can just think about the Bible and it will give you victory, right? So when the, here's what it looks like. When the devil attacks, when he's coming up on you and, and Paul says, take up the sword of the spirit to defend yourself, this isn't grafe. This isn't the devil attacking and you simply holding up your Bible and saying, the power of Christ compels you. The power of Christ compels you. The power of Christ compels you. And then all of a sudden, because you have a Bible in your hand, he's going to flee. This isn't the devil attacking you and you have an understanding of, of your salvation, but you have no desire for sanctification. And you say, well, I get the message. Why don't you just leave me alone? I'm one of God's child. It doesn't work that way. He's going to continue to jab you in the heart with a dagger. When he attacks you, 
Paul says, use the sword of the Spirit. You use rhema. You use the spoken word coming out of your lips. They're coming out of your mouth, but they're the words of God being brought back to life in the presence of your enemy. And when that truth falls on him, he will flee. Because you're not proclaiming your truth. You're not proclaiming my truth. You're proclaiming God's spoken word given to you to defend yourself. Because his words hold power and clout. I'll steal an illustration that one of our elders used Tuesday night for our twilighters, and I'm going to modify a little bit. So this army, this private in the army walks into an office that's full of colonels. There's nothing but colonels there. And he, and he says, gentlemen, I need this document and I need it right away. Well, these are colonels. And this is a private. And you know what they did? They just rolled their eyes at him. Like, don't be walking. You didn't even salute us. Don't be walking in here telling me you need this document right away. And then the private simply said this. Oh, gentlemen, let me rephrase that. I forgot to mention. General Smith needs those documents right away. And then every colonel got up and started scrambling to find the documents that he needed. Why? Because it was his word spoken out of the mouth of a private, but it carried the power and the clout from a general. When the devil attacks you, you pick up the sword and you utter his words and watch them come to life and combat for you. So with that in mind, real quick, in order to properly utilize this Rhema, this sword of the spirit, this verbal spoken word, there are two things that we must do. Number one is this, and you're going to love this one. I think you must, I think it's imperative that you memorize some scripture. Now, we, we, that's, a seat, that's a space maker, right? You don't even like the preacher to tell you to read the word of God. Now I'm up here telling you you should memorize the word of God. Go back to the Psalm 119.11. I have stored up your words in my heart that I might not sin against you. In other words, I don't need to pull this thing out. Power of Christ compels you or try to take a bath in this. I've got this right in here. And when you attack me, this is going to come from here to here, and it's going to stab you here, and you're going to flee from me. It's the spoken word of God. So in order to do that, we've got to memorize Scripture. At the very least, start out with book, chapter, and verse. Like, where do I go when I get attacked? I know I can go here and it's highlighted, but uh, the goal is to memorize it, to memorize Scripture. Because when you hide God's Word in your heart and the devil attacks you and you stab him in his heart with a spoken word and he retreats from you and you don't fall to temptation, do you know what we call that in the church? Victory! We call that victory! We call that, hey, I'm tired of losing. I'm tired of getting, I'm like a pincushion, man. The devil's just like up on me. And there's a we turn the tables on him with the powerful word of God, the sword of the spirit. And then we have victory. So are you saying I need to memorize scripture? Yeah. Oh, that's hard. That's boring. I don't want to do that. Listen, everyone can memorize, right? You know what your address is, don't you? You don't got to look it up. You know what your phone number is, don't you? You know what every login and password 
uh, combination you have for the 26 social media accounts you have. You don't have to look those up, right? You know all the words to your favorite songs. Some of you can tell me every, every Atlanta Braves batting average, their fielding percentage, their on-base percentage. Uh, you can sing and sing and sing songs that you've memorized. Anything we repeat often, we memorize. You know, a preacher will tell you that this will change your life but this will actually will change your life. If you learn to memorize scripture, it will transform your life. I'm gonna give you a head start. You ready? Here's your first verse to memorize. Jesus wept. There you go. So you don't say you don't have a verse memorized, but begin to pick out, let me begin to start with those scriptures that help you with your sin struggle that you know that's how Satan's gonna attack you with. But it's not enough to just think them, you've got to verbalize them. So here's the second point. I'm going to get you out of here. You got to use the rhema word. You got it. Grafe is not going to do you any good. Logos, understanding is not going to do you any good. You've got to use rhema. Rhema is the sword. It's the spoken word. When the devil attacks, don't just think about those scriptures. Verbalize them out loud. And you bring them to life in the presence of your enemy. Look, it feels weird, right? Especially if you grew up in a fundamental conservative church. Like we here at Elevate, when, when people want to raise their hands to praise the Lord, they're kind of, they kind of look around and make sure it's okay. It's, okay. Like, it's kind of weird maybe, but it's, it's, it's not. It's not I'm, I do it all the time. And then like my wife walks in the bedroom, who are you talking to? The devil. What? You're supposed to talk to God. Well, I'm talking to the devil because I'm trying to get him up off me. It's, it seems weird, but I promise you it works. It is so powerful. And the reason it's so powerful is because God's word is powerful. God's word is beautiful. God's word is true. God's word is living and active. You know, in the book of Revelation, when it says Jesus is coming back on a white horse and he's got a sword coming out of his mouth, that scary picture of Jesus, you know what that sword is? Where he's going to strike the nations down? It's the word of God. It's the truth of God. The same sword that you use to defeat your enemy is the sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus to defeat the ultimate enemy. Study it. Memorize it. Live it. Speak it out loud. You know, you want to know what God looks like? Just read his word. It was the year 1898. And a young man named Ben left the East Coast to move out west to stake his fortune. Well, he'd been there for eight years, and he, hadn't be, he wasn't rich, but he had, had accumulated over 300 acres of good land. He had built a comfortable farmhouse. He had planted wheat and corn and all kinds of crops and vegetables. He managed to build a herd of cattle over 200 heads strong. And having accomplished all this and having settled down, he finally decided that now was the time. So he sent a telegraph message to a newspaper in New York City with the ad that said this, wanted a good woman willing to be a pen pal. Marriage is a possibility for the right woman. Well, before long, he, be, he began sending and receiving and corresponding letters with a beautiful young lady named Molly. And through their two-year correspondence, they fell in love with each other. They never met each other, but they'd fallen in love. And so they decided that they were going to meet 
And so there he stood in the Kansas City train station waiting to finally meet her. When the train arrived, there were just, there were women on top of women just pouring out. And suddenly he just yelled, Molly, over here. And she looked that way and she walked over to him and smiled and she was as beautiful as as he thought. And, And she held out her hand and he took it for a moment and then he let it go. And she looked at him with all kinds of seriousness and she said, how did you know who I was? He kind of reached in his back pocket and pulled out all those letters that she had written him. And he said, from these here letters. And she said, but I never sent you a picture. There's no pictures in them. Then he dropped his head a little bit and he said, oh, yes, there are. There are plenty of beautiful pictures in here. Lots of pictures painted by your words. You see, he had spent hours upon hours reading every word, looking for every little clue that would tell him who Molly really was. And he had fallen in love with her words, words that had painted him her portrait. God's word is precious, and it paints a vivid, vivid portrait of who God is. God's not the monster that many people make him out to be. God is the perfect, loving, heavenly Father. It is God's desire that no one should perish, but everyone have eternal life. And that picture of God is painted in his word. And we as his bride should fall in love with his word so that we could fall in love with its author. You see, God's word is very, very powerful. God's word is very, very beautiful. But God's word is very, very practical. It has been given to us by God to defend ourselves from the enemy. We hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast today. If you'd like to learn more about Elevate or partner with us in what God is doing here, check out our website at elevatecc.com. Until next time, God bless you and thanks again.